Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Bill Taub and Dave Tilly. We're excited to welcome Chris Ager, an Army veteran from Amherst, New Hampshire, who also uh, graduated from West Point, uh, has had a long involvement in uh, helping veterans causes in the state of New Hampshire, and just wanted to welcome Chris. All right. Thank uh, you, Dave. It's I'm um, glad to be here. Chris, so when you first considered entering the uh, the military and, and your uh, long service, what, what got you interested in the military? Did you have a family that was previously in the service, or uh, what sparked your interest there in joining the Army? Well, it was really two things. Um, first, when I was 12 years old, I read um, a book about George Armstrong Custer. And uh, General Custer went to West Point. And, uh, you know, we all know that he was a little bighorn. But in the Civil War, he, he was a Union hero for the, the Michigan Cavalry and quite a few uh, of the large battles in the Civil War. And that book got me interested in the military. But, but my father was also a Korean War veteran, um, and he received, uh, you know, several Purple Hearts, you know, essentially fighting the Chinese in the 1st Marine Division. Um, and he was a, a, a machine gunner, a weapons platoon. And so they would have reunions of his platoon because we lived in Washington, D.C. area. And they would tell stories all night long. And that camaraderie also kind of attracted me to the military. Yeah, and being a military brat. And you and you ended up serving in the army. And how how did you end up uh, kind of starting the uh, process of joining yourself? So when I was a uh, a junior in high school, um, I, I took the uh, well the PSAT uh, and then the SAT. And back in the day, you know, before computers, really, um, when you took those tests, there was one question that said, "Would you like us to release your scores?" Uh, to the military. And I checked yes. And after I took the the initial PSAT scores, um, I did receive some um, admission information on how to apply. And that really started the uh, the ball rolling. And the, the one thing I can remember that uh, was, was fascinating to me was there was a, a lieutenant colonel, a uh, retired lieutenant colonel living in the area, and he came over to my house to visit to kind of prepare me for the process. And, you know, that that gentleman um, was kind of like my first real mentor uh, in the military. And he helped me along uh, to, to make sure all the paperwork was correct. And so that, that was the beginning. And, you know, I left at 17 years old, graduated from high school about a week later, uh, jumped on a train and went up to West Point and, uh, you know, never lived at uh, – Never lived in anybody's home but my own since then. So, so, Chris, let me just as Phil and welcome to to our podcast. Really great to have you on here. So, thank you for joining us. I I wanted to ask you a little bit about West Point, and uh, we have quite a as you know we have quite a number of West Point grads living here in New Hampshire. But tell us about your time at West Point, and what, you know, was it what you expected? And and give us a little bit of the highs and lows of that experience. Well, the you know I had this vision in my mind um, because I'd never been north of 
of um, Pennsylvania, I guess, uh, ever before. I think we went to you know, Gettysburg once as a kid um, or Hershey Park. And so I'd never traveled the country. I'd never did any of that. Um, uh, my dad, I'm um, not really a, an army or a military brat. You know, he served and then got out. So I never um, saw uh, that side of the military. Um, but I had no idea what I was getting into, actually. Um, I took the train uh, to New York City, spent the night, and then there was a bus to take people from Times Square to West Point, which is maybe 45 minutes. And um, I, when we got there, it was um, it was pretty intimidating. You're, you're the first moment you get there, it's called R Day or Reception Day. And so you show up, you've got people with long hair, uh, short hair, you know, everybody looks different. By the end of that first day, you're, everybody's got the haircut, uniforms, rooms, um, and you're marching in a parade uh, with the military band and everything. So in one day, people are transformed from, you know, 17, 18-year-old high school kids from across the country into a, into a unit. And it, it continued like that for four years. Um, so the most exciting thing that happened is day one, I'm marching through, and overnight, my mother decided she really wanted to see that see that first opening day parade. And unbeknownst to me, she drove up to West Point, which was um, um, about a five-hour drive. And as I was marching in that little parade, I happened to glance up and see my mother and sister in the crowd. And it, it was just it kind of blew me away that uh, they took the time to come up and do that. Um, but four years of discipline, breaking down barriers between people. And so you were always a cohesive unit. It didn't matter. Um, nobody knew, you know, politics. They didn't care. Um, you know, race was not an issue whatsoever. Um, it, it just didn't matter because you were all one cohesive unit and you had to work together. And so that was four years of, of that kind of discipline. And we, the, the second summer, we, we have summer camp. And I remember flying in a helicopter um, just during the maneuvers. And that's when I decided I wanted to go to flight school uh, in the Army. And for my Air Force friends, you know, the Army has more aircraft than the Air Force. And the Army also has boats than the Navy. And it's it's just an enormous organization. And so so flying at that summer camp had a big, big impact on me. And then just the friends and camaraderie. We, we have reunions every so often. Um, you know, every five years you have the big reunions at the academy. Um, but our class of, of about um, 30 cadets who stayed together all four years, we have reunions just ourselves that our next one's next summer in Nashville. And so, so that friendship, the camaraderie is just incredible. I think that's the single most um, compelling part of that whole experience was the friendships that you made with people um, during those difficult times and the fun times. And uh, it, it all goes together. The highs are high and the lows are low, uh, but you, you get through it. And the organization of the Academy is, is very strict, very disciplined, and, you know, it, it kind of imbues that into the, the cadets while they're there. Because the day you leave, you could be in charge of a platoon 
of of soldiers, some of whom are as old as potentially um, your parents. And so you've got to be ready to be in charge um, the day after you graduate. Chris, I just wanted to comment on your um, West Point service. Our, our kids, and literally when you entered, were you know young and a kid by uh, uh, most standards. And I, you know, one couldn't be more impressed by those that serve and are in our academies. I've served on a number of uh, academy boards and not only are, uh, and I think you're modest, not only are kids uh, in the tops uh, academically, but they're also some of the most well-rounded, impressive young men and women uh, that you could ever meet in uh, any any realm of life. So making it to West Point is just a uh, huge credit uh, for you. But but also I thought uh, another on a common end uh, being being in the military myself as you know folks that enter the military. The point that you mentioned about you all feel, you know, you come from very different walks of life. And once, uh, you know, you're fully uh, into your military uniforms and, you know, <laughs> your hair shaved off or, you know, <laughs> and everything, you're, you're quickly uh, one in the same uh, in um, becoming part of a military unit and, and family. But, uh, but no, just wanted to, uh, on that note, applaud you uh, for for your West Point uh, acceptance and service. And uh, curious, dur during your time in the service, what were some of your, uh, I guess, toughest times and most uh, gratifying times? Yeah. So my my um, so I was serving in in primarily peacetime army. And I, I spent two years in Alaska uh, flying Cobras, and then three years at the National Training Center uh, in Fort Irwin. And in those three years at Fort Irwin, um, we were preparing brigades, you know, say anywhere from three to 5,000 people would show up every month, and we do war games. And the war games were as realistic as, as we could make them. And... Uh, there are a couple of just experiences that, that I just, you know, could never forget. And um, during those three years, we had 14 people um, who died in aircraft accidents. Um, and I was flying helicopters out there as a, as a, uh, a trainer or an observer. And, you know, those 14 uh, fatalities, uh, two of them, I was, right um i was right there you know essentially when they happened and training in our military is is extremely dangerous because you want to make it as close to a reality as possible and you've got you know tanks um in the middle of the night night vision goggles helicopter formations uh, flying um and we even did live fire where we'd have live ammunition go out um, and 
have these very complicated maneuvers where helicopters are flying, you know, at two in the morning, totally blacked out with night vision goggles um, and getting to certain points and then uh, shooting at targets. And, you know, it was, it was, um, I think the best and the worst assignment you could have because you're in the middle of the desert, 40 miles from the nearest Seven Eleven. Um, but you were doing what you were trained to do. You were helping. And all of those units that came through ended up uh, going, when I got out of the army, they ended up going uh, into the Gulf war, you know, at mm-hmm. some point. So it helped train people uh, to get ready for that. And um, the thing that's, that really hits me the most is, so many close encounters people have where in an instant of a second, you know, less than a second, um, you you can make a decision on which way you turn your helicopter or, you know, slew your tank turret. Um, And it can be the difference between life and death, even in training. And so you've got to be on your toes at all times. And um, when we had a helicopter accident um, and two fatalities, um, there were two helicopters involved in a mid-air collision. Two people survived, two did not. The very next day, within 24 hours, the two that were in the the, the accident who did survive were flying again because you don't you don't want to train people to you have a mishap and now you're done. It's you if you have a mishap, learn what happened quickly figure out, let's try not to make it happen again, but you've got to get back up in the saddle. You've got to get going again. You cannot afford to lose um, your team members um, to any of the psychological impact that can happen. And so I was, I was a very, very amazed that the institution helped make that happen. I mean, these are tough people and, you know, there were, memorial services and investigations, but, but the mission went on, you know, after the, the fatal accident, that same afternoon, we were still doing training missions. And so, you know, the, the war doesn't stop and the training didn't stop. And it, um, it, it just kind of hit home that this is, this is for real. This is, even though it's training, it's, it's for real. And that right. same training happens every day, every single day in this country uh, or on our military, people are doing dangerous training and we have training fatalities every year. We have, have numerous training fatalities and it's the nature of the business. And so I think that's where uh, you know, when we watch TV and we'll watch the army Navy game and we'll, we'll see you know, military folks uh, doing their thing. It's, it's a dangerous profession. And I think that's why the, the Army Association really wanted to help people um, because, we, you know, we recognize it's dangerous all the time in the military and people are sacrificing. You know, when you have a kid in the civilian world, you get to take you off a lot of time. You get to stay home. Uh, you, you get that family medical leave. When you're in the military, you really don't. You know, you're deployed overseas. You have a baby and, you know, the mission continues. And so uh, there's a lot of sacrifices that the military across the board have to endure. Chris, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, I still don't understand how helicopters fly. I'll be honest. I feel like they're always fighting gravity. (laughs) So uh, God bless you for figuring out how to fly those things. Um, But I want to pick up on the word sacrifice uh, because, you know, that's an important element of this. And, uh, as you know, Dave served, I did not serve. And 
I think it's important for those of us that did not serve to understand a little bit more about what that sacrifice is, right? Uh, you know, for for those that served uh, and for their families. So, you know, I, I know, you know, a lot of veterans who served felt like they weren't making a lot of sacrifices, that this is what, you know, you chose for your career and, and you know, enjoyed your service and so forth. But we know that there's a lot of sacrifice there. Maybe... If you could just, you know, dive a little deeper, you know, did did you feel any sacrifices yourself? Are you comfortable sharing that with us or or anybody around you, your family, et cetera? Well, I I, I never felt um, I never felt that I was sacrificing anything at the time. And th- that reason is because from when I was 17 years old, um, I'd been part of that institution. And so, you know, it's kind of like the frog in the in, in the boiling water. You know, we were in there when it was cold, so as it warmed up, it didn't it didn't have as much impact. Um, and I'm just talking about people in the peacetime army in training right now. Um, some of the sacrifices, um, you know, when we had a newborn at home, um, you know, little kid run up. I took off uh, three days. You know, so you get three days off, and you know, you're back doing your thing. Um, when we would go for training exercises, we would go, uh, for two weeks at a time and then come home. I did that for three years, every month, two weeks in the field, two weeks home for three years. And when you're out there, you know, you're kind of out in the middle of, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, when you're, when your spouse has trouble, you know, they can't just call you and you come and, and work on it as a team. And so a lot of the burden goes on the spouse and the spouse trying to figure out, get everything accomplished while you're gone. Um, that's a huge burden that as an and army you, you institution. Didn't, you didn't have FaceTime back then. <laughs> ah, there's no, there, I don't even think we had cell phones back then. No, um, exactly. But, <laughs> um, but it, it's, it, you put a lot of burden on half of the family. And the other half is out doing their job. So I think the burden actually many times falls more on the military spouse uh, than on the family member and um, then on the service member. And when I was in Alaska, we, we were considered a deployed unit. And our mission was uh, to defend the territorial integrity of Alaska. You know, we had nine Cobras and an infantry brigade. So, you know, it was a pretty uh, interesting job. But you know, we had missions um, that involved patrolling and protecting the pipeline, the Alaskan pipeline, should uh, any hostilities come forward. And we also had uh, some missions to disrupt and delay um, any land forces should they come. So you could kind of, you know, figure what that might be. But uh, with only nine Cobras and in an in infantry platoon, Duke Flew and Huey's, you know, we had a real live mission that we were out there and we had this exercise called brim frost or jack frost, uh, depending on what years it was, where people would come in and we had frostbite um, every single exercise in the middle of the winter. It got down to minus 55 or minus 65 um, air temperature. But you had people that came up who weren't used to that weather. And when they were training, you'd have frostbite. Uh, you'd have vehicles that wouldn't start because they were just so cold soaked. And the, the biggest problem we had were tent fires. You have these large army tents 
and you have the stoves and people turn the stoves up because it was so cold. They turn the stove up too high, too close to the, uh, the edge of the tent, it would burn the tents down. And so we had, uh, we had casualties due to that, um, as well. So, you know, this, this military is well-trained and we do well in wars because we're so well-trained, but to be well-trained, you've got to go into the element that you expect to see. So in the desert in California and Alaska, the cold weather, um, down at uh, Fort Polk, kind of in that, that nasty Louisiana, uh, you know, that kind of bayou, you know, swampland, we're all over the place. And it's, um, you know, some, we, we also have a couple of missions where people, even in peacetime, they get called up and you disappear for a while. And uh, not being able to tell your spouse where you're going or what you're doing um, is, you know, that's kind of tough too, you know, because you just, they don't know if you're, where you're going. You could be anywhere in the world. And uh, that happens, uh, I think, relatively frequently as well. And so it's it's some of that unknown, you know, that's but the guys in, and I say guys mostly, but it's the guys and women. Um, but when you get when you get called up and you grab your kit bag that's packed, I mean, you're excited. You're, you're you want to go do your job. You know, you're not thinking, oh, this is a sacrifice. I got to miss something at home. You're thinking, hey, I get to go do my job. And you're fired up. And that's how this institution's been trained to react. Not self pity, oh, woe is me. I don't get paid enough. None of that. Nobody talks about that when when things are happening. They're like, Hey, make sure, make sure everything's packed. Make sure you've got everything ready to go. You know, we want to do well. You want to take care of your wingman or, you know, your squad members or, or your team. You don't want to let them down. And that's the overall mentality. It's not, you know, oh, you know, boo-hoo, crybaby, I got to sacrifice. It's not it at all. I mean, I, I, I don't think I ever heard anything like that uh, when I was in uh, the Army or uh, with AUSA. Chris, what, what yeah, you're yeah. What, what, what you're uh, mentioning and discussing is uh, you know important for um, our listeners to hear. I, I mean, many service members uh, and their families know the sacrifice day to day, but you know you mentioned early on. Um, uh, the sacrifice and risk involved with very realistic training where we uh, lose men and women in uniform through training accidents, through uh, whether it's helicopter, you know, touch and goes or tank accidents or you name it, but also um, the challenges that you've mentioned on, on the families with, even if you're not on a deployment, you may be uh, on assignment for a, a month uh, in training away in uh, realistic exercises that separate you from your family. And uh, the, the spouse and family have to, uh, you know, take care of everything. And it puts uh, a lot of times for a lot of military families, a uh, real strain. Uh, and there's a real sacrifice, whether uh, 
through through uh, a military service member service, whether deployed in harm's way or going through realistic training where you're also quite potentially in harm's way. And appreciate you bringing, bringing up uh, those points and, and was wondering uh, you know, through, through your service, Chris, some of the, uh, what, what were some of your kind of most uh, memorable moments, experiences, high points? Uh, two during your time that you that you may want to share, um, and uh, but but also on the other end, some of the challenges at times it might have faced too on on family and relationships. Yeah, well, when when I was um, um when I got off of active duty, I I was in the reserves for a while. And and that's pretty that's very tough because you're you're trying to maintain a civilian job and your you know, your military service. But I was the re, the 94th Regional Support Command adjutant uh, for a year, and we were deploying people to Kosovo at the time. And when we first got notice of our orders, they they were not classified. Um, but they were sensitive. We notified our company commanders and our battalion commanders. And after we notified them, we, we had a large loss of our reserve soldiers because they, they did not yet have their orders to go overseas. Once that happens, they, they it's a stop loss. They cannot get out. But we were giving them a heads up, a warning. Hey, we're getting orders. We're on, we're, getting ready to go, let's start preparing. And a lot of people, I think it was about 20% of our units, the people got out of the reserves. And that was crushing to me because, you know, we couldn't really do our mission. And the 94-3 support command at the time was um, logistics, you know, railhead, um, port people, you know, transportation battalions. And so we struggled to to beef up those units the next time we got a, a warning a warning order that we were going to be deploying we had to make the difficult decision not to tell even our, our commanders that we were going to be deployed and so we did not tell them until the actual orders came down so we had you know weeks of preparation time that we were not able to take advantage of because we didn't want to tell people because we were concerned people would get out. And so that was one of the hardest, you know, kind of decisions that we had to make along with general Colt, who was the, uh, the commander at the time. But, um, you know, we all recommended, you know, on the staff and as the adjutant, that was one of the, the major things that I had to, uh, to deal with. So that was a heartbreaking thing to not be able to tell people because you're worried about people um, getting out of the reserve and which was legal to do. Um, the, the other, you know, one of the favorite things that uh, I did was probably one of the scariest is we planned a mission, a training mission um, to go live fire um, in the middle of the night at national training center. And we planned out a mission with a unit that we had trust in to fly through an artillery barrage um, en route to the target area and then shoot live ordnance and then come back a different area, a different route. And uh, 
that one, we learned something that night, um, very valuable to the Army. But as we flew through that artillery barrage, every time that the guns fired, the, the night vision goggles would kind of black out on you. And um, we learned very quickly um, that, that you had to fly away from um, those guns, almost like tacking on a sailboat. You had to kind of fly away so you weren't looking straight at all that, all that light coming out, blinding you. And uh, with, with night vision goggles, was, yes, with night vision goggles. Um, and so we flew that mission. Um, and you know, the, the way the artillery works, you know exactly how long it takes from when the shot is out until splash when it hits the ground. And we are flying right where the rounds were erupting, and we had calculated it. We were gonna, we were gonna get there 10 seconds after the last round impacted, and the closer we got the higher the pucker factor, because you're like, oh my God, what if we miscalculated the timing? And so right before we call the break, um, the last round hit. And, you know, we were probably really close to that 10 seconds um, from from the impact spot when, when the last round uh, hit. But that mission went off, um, and, you know, a lot of those kind of lessons were, you know, embedded into some of the training. Uh, but night vision goggles was relatively new back then, and uh, they were they were uh, not as good as they are today. So, right, that was a that was a great a great uh, learning experience that we were able to share with you know the greater army. And uh, you know, my last stories in Alaska, we you know, I was the training officer, and so you know our train our mission again protect the territorial integrity of Alaska. So we said, well, let's um. Let's give our infantry something to do. We had a platoon. We did a lot with aviation. We said, let's give them something. Let's say there's a downed pilot, um, and it's an enemy. You know, aircraft is shot down. They parachute in, and they got to pick them up. So I was nominated as the, since I came up with the idea, I was going to be the guy put down all by himself in the middle of Alaska um, with a with nothing but, you know, my cold weather gear. And I had a fake, I had a parachute, and I laid the, so I got dropped off by OH-58, put out the parachute, and I started running. And little did I know that I ran outside of the of the zone that was going to be um, covered. And so here I am. It's in the dark. It's like minus, who knows, 30 or 40. And I'm all by myself, and I'm like, okay, this is not a good idea. You know, did I just uh, – now I want to be found. And so uh, – I was out there for several hours until uh, somebody finally spotted me, um, you know, jogging down a little, must have been a moose path or something. And uh, they came and picked me up. But that, that was a, self, a self-induced, self real live, live uh, you know, realistic type training that uh, um, for a minute there, I'm like, you know, maybe I'm going to freeze to death down here because I, these guys can't find me. And, uh, you know, they did and everything was fine. But, um, you know, I look back at it now as it was a lot of fun, but at the time, uh, it was pretty spooky. And so those things happen, you know, they're happening all the time in our military all across the country. People are doing, you know, thinking of good ideas for better training, you know, working with their units. Uh, and we just got to be careful. We don't get too, um, too cautious that we don't get that real training. It's a real balance. And uh, people make those decisions every single day. And they're young people. You know, they're young people in their 20s uh, making those hard decisions. 
Chris, thank you for sharing those stories. Really, really great stuff. Um, how old were you when when you left your military service? Um, so I spent uh, seven years in active duty. So I think I was like eight or twenty nine, and then I spent ten years um, on and off in the reserves. So I was in the uh, the IRR uh, Individual Ready Reserve for that ten years, but I was only active in the 94th Regional Sport Command, I think, for two years out of that out of that time period. So most so, of the stories I told you, I, uh, were I, all those stories, I was in my 20s. Yeah. When they happened. Right. And so, you know, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, you know, after service. You know, I, I know you've accomplished a fair amount, and I obviously know what you're doing now. But, you know, for, for our audience that maybe doesn't know you, give us a little sense of what you've been doing. Sure. So um, one thing Dave mentioned, I, I was the, the president of the Army uh, Association of the U.S. Army, the New Hampshire chapter. And we have a lot of great, great people volunteering. Greg Darbone is the president now. He he took over after me. He's done a fantastic job. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed of what we did there was um, this Adopt a Platoon program um, where when people were deployed, we'd pick a platoon in Afghanistan or Iraq, and we would send them goodie baskets. And we'd ask them what they wanted, and we would we'd send them uh, baskets. It, uh, and, we, and we partnered up with some local businesses, too. That was that was a very gratifying program. And then the other thing was we did this thing called Adopt a Recruit. So new recruits, uh, mostly high school kids um, from New Hampshire who were going into the military before they left for basic training, we'd give them a kit bag of the, the minimum that they needed to take with them. And, you know, that's, you know, toothbrush, you know, soap, comb, you know, the, shampoo, just small items like a lock, combination lock. And the reason we did that is a mother told a story once that the night before her son was going to deploy, I think, the, the basic training at Fort Jackson, he said, oh, my goodness, Mom, I don't, I don't have my stuff. So the dinner, the going-away dinner they planned, they had to postpone, and they had to go shopping. And we heard that story, and we said, you know, we can take care of that. So uh, that, that was, I think, the most fulfilling project that we, that we did. And we did that for a while. Um, I, and, you know, we got some great thank you notes, almost, almost bring a tear drop. Uh, since then, I, you know, I've gotten involved in, in the local uh, issues. I was a school board uh, chairman and budget committee member in, in the town I lived in. Um, and, you know, since then I got a little bit uh, more involved in politics. I'm the, um, national committee man for the Republican Party in New Hampshire now, which represents New Hampshire uh, to the RNC. And it's 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 been a, a, a fun job to do. You know, it's all volunteer work. You know, it's not a paid job at all. And we really need people to do those kind of jobs. School board, budget committee, um, no matter what your persuasion is, it doesn't matter. Just if people get involved. Get, get involved and, in public ideas support. Forward. Public service, no matter what it is, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you know, just get involved in it. It makes our communities better represented by the people who live there. And 
um, it, it's, it's fulfilling both ways. You know, you get to help your community, but you also get a lot out of it. And so I would encourage everyone to find that thing in your community, you know, whether it's library trustee or just volunteering um, at, you know, Lions Club, Rotary Club, um, whatever you can do. It just makes your community so much better and makes for a better state. And um, it's it's a win-win all the way around. And so I've, I've really enjoyed doing that. As long as you can balance it with your family and your job, it's, it's, it's that third leg I would encourage people to kind of step up and, and take care of. Chris, what, what are some of the things you, you miss most about serving in the, uh, in the military and, and for, you know, our, our listeners too, would, for young people looking at joining today, would you recommend joining? Uh, what would, what would you uh, recommend for them about, uh, or give them advice on uh, potentially serving in the military? I would, I would absolutely encourage if you're interested at all to search out, you know, what you could do, what, what opportunities are available. If, even if you have any inkling at all, it's a fantastic uh, training opportunity for young people. You get more experience and leadership opportunities in the military than you can get almost anywhere else. You know, as a 17, 18, 20-year-old, you know, you're handling large equipment, you're in charge of people, you have a, a real live important uh, mission to accomplish, and you're part of an organization that's got a tremendous amount of history to it. And and that history has allowed these organizations you know, to be well run. You know, everything that's done is done for a purpose. And you also get I hate to put it this way, but you don't have to decide what to wear when you get up in the morning. You know what you got to wear. So it eliminates that, you know, what am I going to wear to work today? It's like, you're going to wear what you got to wear. Um, but, you know, the joking aside, it, it, it gives you, even if you don't stay for long, even if it's only one tour, tremendous training and exposure. And you also get to meet a lot of really great people. And, you know, my lifelong friends are still people I met when I was 17 years old. Right. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's a good thing to be part of if, if you have that inkling. It's not for everybody. Um, you know, if, if you want to keep long hair, you know, ponytail, man bun, it's probably not for you because you're going to have to cut it right off. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just a great experience. Um, it's, it's the learning is very steep, very early. Um, and, you know, we think today, a lot of people think, oh, a 24, 25-year-old, oh, they don't know anything. Well, can, in the military, a 25-year-old can be a, a company commander, you know, a captain in charge of 150 people um, who have a real-world mission, who have, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment, inventory, um, all of that. You know, as a, as a young 25-year-old, if, if, you know, you happen to be a captain, um, as an NCO or as an enlisted man, you know, you could be staff sergeant, you know. Um, you know, and staff sergeants, you know, and, and the NCOs really run the military day-to-day. Um, right. They learn a tremendous amount, whether it's officer, enlisted. Um, either way, you learn a lot, and you're part of a great institution. And I 
very highly um, recommend it if you're interested at all. And, you know, anything you hear, you know, the some of the, the social media things you hear, I would just kind of ignore that. Um, you know, some of it's good, some bad, whatever. Just kind of ignore that. Um, the military is a great place to be. Um, you know, you can be called up to do dangerous things. And so you've got to be, you've got to be ready to do that. And, um, but you don't, you know, I find most people, if they're in active duty, they don't even think about that. It's just, Hey, if you got to go, I mean, people line up, they just go. Um, but it's a fantastic opportunity for young people. And, you know, you sign up for a tour, say it's a three-year gig, um, in three years you can reassess. Do you want to stay or not? But I would, I would encourage everyone to look at it. I, I couldn't, Chris, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I went in myself after college, uh, after a four-year degree, and the, uh, where I couldn't agree more was the uh, rapid learning, whether it's uh, basic soldier skills and, and uh, weaponry, or when you're at AIT, advanced training, um, all that you learn, what, uh, and, and the experiences from it, uh, you know, I, in college, I'm proud of the time that I, uh, you know, it was in college and attended college and graduated, but in, in the military, it's, it's rapid learning and you learn, uh, you know, so many things on advanced skills. And I think for uh, any uh, person looking at en entering, it's uh, invaluable. And the and the leadership that you're put on at a very uh, uh, early point in that uh, career uh, trajectory. And uh, now I'd appreciate you bringing that up, Chris. Yeah, and you know, I, I went to flight school, so I flew helicopters, but I started um, in the armor branch, so with tanks. And, you know, back in the day, you had to have a, a branch other than aviation, you know, and so I chose armor. And the reason was, you know, I watched the movie Patton, so that's, you know, that, that had an impact on me as well. And uh, I just want to tell you one last story is um, I had only been in armor basic it's the first course after graduating west point so went uh, to armor basic and during that armor basic training um our tank was crossing the road at about five in the morning it was dark and we were uh, t-boned by an 18-wheeler who um, ran through the the barrier um that was set up you know to stop traffic and, you know, they speculate the guy must have fallen asleep. But he T-boned us uh, going about 55 miles an hour. And the only injury we had in the tank was I cut the top of my fingers because I ducked when he hit and had my hands on top holding. And some of the glass came across and, uh, you know, just cut, you know, very minor little cuts on my fingers. Um, one of the guys inside the tank didn't even know we were hit. And that's how tough these tanks are, 52 tons. Uh, back in the day of uh, rolled homogeneous steel. 
um, very tough. After that, after the hit destroyed the cab of the truck, the tank drove off. Um, and, you know, we have some great equipment. We got great training. Um, try to minimize the, you know, the, the danger to our people. And, but I was just amazed. You know, here I am, a 21 year old, just out of West Point. So my first dangerous encounter is a, is a semi. And, uh, it was a tragic accident, but, um, you know, those things unfortunately do happen on occasion. Um, but that can happen to anybody at any time. Right. Uh, the good part was our tank was so tough that it just it absorbed that blow uh, and kept going. So just amazing. 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 Chris, uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, it was a great experience. But, you know, I knew when it was time for me to, to get out um, and everybody has a different threshold. You know, we had uh, we had two kids and, you know, the, one of them was getting ready to enter school. And, you know, you kind of got to have to decide, um, do I want my okay. kids to have the military life, which is great. They try, get to travel a lot, meet people, get exposure. Or do you want to settle down and, and have your kids They'll grow up in a, in a more stable environment, you know, in one location. And so, you know, we moved, got out of the army, moved to New Hampshire and, uh, you know, still there. So, and, um, and you have a daughter that picked up piloting from you. Uh, she did. Yeah. She's got a private <laughs> pilot's license. Yep. Oh, and she's also, uh, um, expecting, uh, twins. So we're going to have two more grandchildren here pretty soon. Uh, oh, exciting awesome. news as well. That is awesome. I'm sorry, Phil, I interrupted you there. No, that's okay. I was going to ask no, a very important question to Chris. You know, by the time we air this uh, podcast, Chris, the Army-Navy game will have been played. I wanted to get a oh, quick, yeah. quick prediction from you, because, you know, I'm pretty, through all my, my time with the, some of the mission, the Navy SEALs, I find myself rooting for Navy in the Army-Navy game. But uh, what's your prediction yeah. this week? Oh, Army's going to win. Oh, I'll be kind, you know, 35 to three. And uh, once again, Army will take home the commander in chief's uh, trophy. And uh, oh. my brother, my brother-in-law went to the Naval Academy and I relish the fact that on December 11th, about dinner time, I'm going to call him uh, to let him know that once again, Army beat Navy. Fantastic <laughs> rivalry. It's very that's very hurtful. I just want you to know. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's it's a it's a great game. It's, if you've never been to one, I highly encourage it. It's uh, at the Meadowlands this year. But um, it's, it's a great atmosphere. Yeah, and a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Corky Meisner, has invited me to go with him. So I might do that this year because I have not been. And yeah, I mean, I've watched it on television oh, yeah. a few times, but I think that doesn't do it justice. So yeah, I would love to go at some no. point. Great experience, and it's it's in uh, Giant Stadium this year, so uh, it's in a big stadium. And uh, um, well, Corky, he can he's going to have great seats right at the fifty yard line. I'm sure. Um, yeah, just a funny note. I was at West Point uh, for my reunion a few weeks ago, and I was walking with like the granddaughter. We we're going to go in and get some chicken fingers, and some guy in the stands is yelling and waving at me. And I look up and I go, ah, oh, it's probably a classmate or somebody. And I just wave. And then uh, I go, I'm standing in line getting my food, and 
Corky taps on my shoulder and says, hey, didn't you recognize me? I'm like, no, Corky. <laughs> it was Corky. So, you know, you just you run into friends and then people you know at those games, too. It's, it's a lot of fun. Great, great collegial atmosphere as well. Just, uh, here we go. Um, we might go this year, but, uh, we, you know, we'll see what the calendar does. Yeah, I'd recommend it, Phil, if you can make it. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, great experience. That's, uh, that's terrific. And um, I was supposed to go to the War College a few years ago, but COVID got in the way. You know, for the end of the capstone uh, year, oh, right? Yeah. Offices go through, and uh, I'm 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 humbled and, and honored. I was invited to go again, and so looking forward to that. Uh, hopefully, in June of next year. Or so. Uh, we'll see how that goes, but I'll still be rooting for Navy, Chris, just so you know. And if you don't hear oh, from me, it's because Army won. But if you do hear from me, you know, it's because Navy won. Well, I would just say uh, prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. No, well, you, we, you never know. You never know. You're right. All right. Well, we can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share your story and and your thoughts and, and so forth. And, and we're very grateful for your service and, and your sacrifice and, and your family's sacrifice. And you're a great American and a great representative of New Hampshire. And so very grateful for all of this, Chris. Yeah. Thank, right, thank, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining our podcast and for all you've done in your service and what you continue to do for our veterans. And I, I know, uh, we're we're very proud to have you as a guest on our show. All right, Dave. Well, thank you, and and Phil, and thanks for everything you all are doing. Um, it's uh, it, it's a big team effort, and uh, that swim for a mission. Uh, that's uh, that's unbelievably fantastic. You know, despite the fact that it's Navy focused, uh, I'll kind of give you a pass <laughs> on that one. I, I will. You will be very happy to know, Chris, that we were approached by a group of Green Berets and some Delta Force guys uh, who are sick of the Navy SEALs once again getting all the glory. And so we will have a fairly large, uh, you know, Army contingent coming in next year to do uh, some fun events. Oh, great. Yeah. So, Chris, we can help bring in some tanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can, yeah. <laughs> maybe <laughs> oh, well great well thank you all thank you both I really appreciate uh, the invitation and chatting with you today oh thank you this podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members veterans and their families in their time of need and Dairy Cam who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Harris Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.